The following podcast contains explicit language. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we start this week's show, we have a special announcement. This year, 2021, marks the 25th anniversary of Slate. And for a limited time only, we are offering our annual Slate Plus membership for $25 off the usual price. When you're a Slate Plus member, you get zero ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited articles on Slate.com, and members-only content on our show and other Slate podcasts, like Slow Burn, Amicus, and The Political Gab Fest. For the past 25 years, Slate podcasts have been covering all of the major news events from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. I know one of the earliest podcasts we did here for the Slate Culture Gab Fest was about the election of Barack Obama. So that's how long we've been at what we're doing. Whatever happens in culture as the world changes around us, we have been debating it on our show. And if we have become a part of your podcast listening routine, we're asking you now to support our work by joining Slate Plus. You can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash culture plus to keep us going for another 25 years. Once again, we are giving you $25 off an annual membership through this October 31st. So sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. And thank you. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. I'll be your mirror edition. It's Wednesday, October 20th, 2021 on today's show. The Velvet Underground is a documentary on Apple Plus. It recounts in glorious detail the rise of the greatest art rock band of all time and the New York City avant-garde milieu that gave it life and purpose. It's from the filmmaker Todd Haynes. We'll be joined for that segment by Slate's own Carl Wilson. And then the Netflix show Midnight Mass is a supernatural horror series. It's also a yes, it's true, believe me or not. It is a theodicy. It's a meditation on the presence of evil in a world supposedly created by a loving deity. For that segment, we'll be joined by Rebecca Onion. And finally, the comedian Dave Chappelle has made what he says is his final special for Netflix. We address his attempt to address the controversies surrounding his anti-trans humor. For that segment, we'll be joined with Jesse David Fox. For now, though, we do have Dana Stevens for, I believe, the first segment and endorsements. Dana. Hey, Steve. Good to be here. And we're joined this week by Karen Hahn. Karen, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for uh, having me. It's always a delight. Yeah, it's great to have you back. All right, let's uh, let's do this. <laughs> All right, well, since roughly 1980, when I was an adolescent uh, up to now, I've held only two beliefs consistently the whole time. The first was that Ronald Reagan was evil, and the second was that the Velvet Underground is the greatest rock and roll band of all time. They, of course, they share that title. I know, save your emails. They share that title with at least three others. I would argue only three others, but that's a discussion for another day. They were famously avant-garde in their attitude and menacing in their sound. They sold virtually no records at the time during their run in the 60s as Andy Warhol's pet project and the factory's house band. But as the cliche goes, they launched a thousand others, bands that we know and love. Their records and songs are now iconic. Still the story and the backstory of the band, what each of its members but principally Lou Reed, a fucked up suburban kid from Long Island, and John Cale, an avant-garde musician from Wales, brought to the project as well as their, in addition to their chief enabler, Warhol, and their chief collaborator, arguably Nico. That story and backstory is now given its proper due by filmmaker Todd Haynes in his documentary that goes by the name The Velvet Underground. It's up on uh, streaming on Apple. Why don't we uh, listen to a clip? Upstairs was a scene that developed. 
people like Walter Cronkite and Jackie Kennedy and a lot of the socialites showed up down there because of Andy and because of his connections with the Central Park West art collectors. Incredible people came and danced. Uh, Nureyev came and danced. The whole New York City ballet used to come and dance. All right. Well, we're joined by Carl Wilson, of course, the music critic for Slate. Carl, welcome back to the show. So glad to be here. Uh, let me begin by congratulating you on, uh, you brought a lo- lot of love to your VU piece on Slate. It's terrific. A uh, piece of writing. No surprise. Oh, thank you. I love this documentary. It does a couple of things. I know the story of the band pretty well, as I'm sure you did, but it does a couple of things quite well, I thought, and filled in where people might not otherwise understand fully the story. First of all, it is a, in addition to an incisive portrait of a great iconic rock and roll band, it's the backstory. It's the story of the milieu that gave them their sort of purpose and meaning in some sense, not just the Warhol milieu. That's only a small part of it in a way and becomes a huge part of it, but it's really a much deeper story about the avant-garde in post-war New York City, a loft scene, an art scene, a performance art scene, and an art film scene with people like Jonas Mikas at the center of it, as a consequence of which there's a ton of very interestingly shot archival footage of the band virtually from its inception. I learned a lot and I was surprised by that. I know that's not phrased as a question, but Carl, I have to imagine the velvets are kind of at the core of your canon maybe, but did you learn things and did it hold your attention? Or what'd you make of the documentary and what do we know about the band now that we didn't before? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that I learned facts. Definitely. I am of that niche in music fandom where the Velvet Underground was pretty formative to everything I looked for aesthetically after discovering them. So, so all of the information was there. And I'm also kind of an art nerd. So so the experimental cinema scene that they talk about and the kind of uh, minimalist experimental music scene that Kale was involved in, all of that stuff was familiar to me on one level. But I think that's something that the movie does incredibly well. And I think it's because of Haynes' background as a fiction filmmaker. This is his first documentary. It manages in a way that almost no rock documentary I've ever seen does to not second guess itself, not to tell us the story as though the end of the story is a given. It actually tells it the way you would tell this in a novel, as though we don't know where this is going. And so the ingredients very slowly come together. You see Reed emerging from Long Island, and you see John Cale emerging from Wales, and slowly finding each other through these different art scenes. And In the case of the Velvet Underground, that's incredibly important because their reputation in some ways has grown to the point where it really eclipses them as a project and as human beings, such that their influence really subsumes everything about the music and how really extraordinary and strange it is Mm. that this music happened at all. (laughs) All it would take is like Leonard Bernstein not to have given John Cale a fellowship to come to New York and study at Tanglewood and the Velvet Underground would never have happened. And there's a million little accidents like that that we kind of get to experience in real time. And the great thing about it compared to rock documentaries, usual thing, is there's 
pretty much no preaching and sermonizing and bloviation about the significance of the band. Yes. Like Haynes lets us figure that out for ourselves and take it for granted. And the movie just cuts off at the point where Lou Reed leaves the band. There's not like another half hour of Bono and Dave Grohl <laughs> sitting around <laughs> pontificating yes. about oh, their importance. God. And that's a really, that's a, a really important and refreshing approach. And then as you were saying, all of the artifacts of the time, the experimental cinema by Mikas and Jack Smith and Maya Darren and Stan Brackage and Warhol's own work all fills the screen all the time. It's, kind of, it's usually a split screen between some actual interviewee and all of this kind of cultural milieu and the background sound coming from the music. And it's all kind of a collage that like really immerses you in a way that I think is just, I mean, I have only been able to see it on streaming and not in a cinema, unfortunately, but I can only imagine yes. how amazing it would be to really see it in that environment. Agree. And I'll cede the floor very quickly, but I do want to say something fast, which is that in place of Dave Grohl and Bono, you have Lamont Young and Delmore Schwartz, just to pick out two huge influences on the band. Lamont Young, avant-garde composer, pioneering the use of microtonal shifts in drone in order to achieve almost like a kind of spiritual breakthrough, which was hugely influential on Kale. And the way that works itself into the sound of the Velvet Underground is just so fucking fascinating. You're like, oh, I really get now where that influence came from, where that sound came from and why it was there of especially the first record. But then also like Delmore Schwartz, this extraordinary poet who kind of ended up self-squandering spectacularly, nonetheless was a really extraordinary writer across multiple formats. I mean, he was this, in Dreams Begin Responsibilities, just an incredibly beautiful set of short stories, w was a kind of mentor figure to a very painfully lost Lou Reed when Lou Reed and washed, sort of washed up really at Syracuse University. Schwartz just happened to be there and it gave Reed a sense of his own literary vocation. And really that's where those you know, even by the standards of Dylan, quite self-consciously literary lyrics about supposedly debased subjects, you know, came from. And it's it's just, it's so much better to have all of that in the first half hour of the movie than to have the, you know, okay, boomer bloviators in the last half hour of the movie. But anyway, guys, take it away. I had a question. This is a little bit of a pivot, but I am going to assume that of the four people chatting right now, I am the least familiar with the Velvet Underground. And one thought that I had, Carl, as you said, one of the things that I really appreciate about the documentary is that it doesn't like bloviate, it doesn't go on too long. And I think it's also kind of separate from what we usually expect from documentaries at this point in that it kind of does the minimal amount of handholding in terms of explaining who these people are and explaining kind of more than the talking heads are saying to that. And I feel like I still got the overall narrative that Todd Haynes was trying to spin about the inception of the Velvet Underground. But at the same time, I'm sort of wondering, you guys as Velvet Underground fans, do you think that this movie is super accessible mm. for people who aren't familiar with their music or with the people in the band? Karen, that is a great question. I'm really glad that there's someone on the panel who who didn't grow up listening to this music because then you can think of it as a, you know, a documentary in terms of information delivery and does it succeed at that? But I feel like we're all not yet putting our finger on what is so unique about this documentary, which 
which is the form that Todd Haynes brings to it. I don't think that he intends to teach people about the Velvet Underground necessarily in terms of, uh, I think you say this in your in your review, Carl, or somebody did in writing about it, of taking notes, right? It's not like you would watch this and then you'd be able to pass a quiz on the history of art rock in the 1960s mm. and John Cale's scholarship from Leonard Bernstein. It's a completely sensory experience that you, Carl, in your review call rapturous, which I think was the perfect adjective. That was exactly my response to this. As less of a music person than a movie person, my first response on hearing about this was, Todd Haynes made a documentary? <laughs> you know, it almost didn't matter what it was about. I wanted to see what he, as one of my favorite working filmmakers, would bring to the form of a nonfiction film. And I feel like what this movie does there is so radical and inventive that I cannot wait to see it again. I'm definitely seeing it on the big mm-hmm. screen. It's just, it's a beautiful piece of cinema. And I wanted to talk, for example, specifically, Carl, about the way that uh, that Haynes gets that effect you were talking about, that there aren't bloviating Dave Grohl's on screen. And that's by placing this deliberate limitation on himself that he would only talk to people or listen to audio footage of people who were there at the time, right? So the talking heads are yeah, by yeah. Maureen Tucker, uh, who was the drummer for the band, and Mary Warrenov, who was a you know figure on the factory scene. Those people are still alive and they are talking heads who are interviewed in chairs in the classic way, but there's really relatively little of that. Most of the voices we hear are the voices of, for example, Jonas Mikas, who died shortly before this, this movie was made, or while it was being made, I suppose, since he's interviewed, and John Cale recorded from the time, Lou Reed recorded from the time. And then what he does visually while you're hearing those voices is also unusual. This is something we've talked about many times when we talk about documentaries on the show, which is that the documentarian's problem, especially when you're talking about things that happened long enough in the past that a lot of the subjects are dead, is what do you show while you're listening to the music or listening to the voices, right? And often there's this kind of visual vamping that's really boring, right? Just the standard PBS, let's show a montage of news from the time or something like that. And Haynes never does that. He's always doing something visually interesting and mysterious and layered with, as you say, Carl, these multiply portioned split screens with different things going on in them. Some of it Andy Warhol films, some of it footage of the Velvet Underground, but some of it, you know, advertising from the time or what looks like home movies of street scenes of New York. And so it's just this super uh, kind of immersive and layered experience to watch this movie. And I cannot wait to watch it again. It's definitely going my 10 best of the year. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's amazing about it. And the reason that there's never been a really comprehensive VU documentary before is that surprisingly, given that they had all these filmmakers around them, there's actually very little surviving footage of the band performing. And what there is has terrible sound. And so Haynes uses what's there for that, but finds this incredible solution of drawing visual material from the archive of the entire environment around them. And it's funny because there are talking heads going on pretty much all the time. It is like an oral history of the life of the band over the period that it's covering. But this other thing is also going on all the time. So it's almost like there's four hours of movie packed into this two hours of movie. And the other thing I just wanted to say, like, well, we're talking about who the interviewees are, and some of them are really amazing. But it's key, I think, to the way the story gets told here, that John Cale is basically the point of view character, along yeah. with Mo, one of the two survivors of the peak period of the band, because Lou Reed died about six years ago, and Sterling Morrison died a long time ago, the band's guitarist. And Cale has always been, he gets his due as, as kind of the co-leader of the band, but they've all kind of been overshadowed by Lou Reed over the decades. And I'm sure Haynes would have loved to be able to talk to Lou, but at the same time, 
time. It's part of the way that it kind of shifts your whole perspective on the band that Kale's perspective comes to the forefront. And mm-hmm. that, and I think that's, as a contribution to music history, something that the documentary really contributes kind of subtly and under its breath. I wholeheartedly agree. And Kale says, first of all, he's a magnificently self-possessed late middle-aged man who's a wonderful interviewee. I could have listened to him talk about anything for hours. At one point, he says, the thing about a band is if it works, it's two plus two equals seven. So he gives you a sense of like where the seven came from, especially out of the creative friction between him and Lou Reed. Two shout outs I really want to make. Jonathan Richmond, the chief songwriter and singer of The Modern Lovers, maybe the first of the really great bands influenced by the Velvet Underground, talks beautifully about, they they were a religion to a very young and very lost Jonathan Richmond, the band he went and saw them. I think he estimates in the multiple dozens of times. I think the number is as high as 60 or 80. He says 60 to 70 times. Yeah. Incredible, right? And <laughs> and his descriptions are genuinely magnificent as a man who fronted a band and a great band, in my estimation. The other person I think is very important to point out is Amy Taubin for all of the really horrible narcissistic mythologizing around the factory scene about which I have much more equivocal feelings than I do about the Velvet Underground. I'm glad that someone, when someone comes out and reinforces the truth of it, which is that it was highly misogynistic and it tended to chew up and spit out beautiful women. And that was very much a consequence of Warhol's attitude towards women. And I thought both of those voices were I was very grateful to have in the documentary. Another angle that Todd Haynes brings, and he brings it out in a lot of, uh, of different footage and different interviews, is the kind of queer adjacent nature of the whole factory scene, right? I mean, there was a lot of sex going on, both homo and hetero within that scene. A lot of those people were hooking up and there was exploitation going on, but there was also kind of exploration and in the music too, sort of pushing of boundaries that had not been pushed before. And that's not something that it seems like gets stressed a lot in histories of rock music in general. So I really welcomed you know, Todd Haynes, one of the great queer filmmakers bringing that angle. As an extension of that, Dana, I think there's also something that we shouldn't leave this session without mentioning, which is that I think there's a yearning that runs through this film in recreating that time and the pioneeringness of what was going on from these artists. There's a question I think Haynes is posing as as a sort of radical filmmaker himself who has found his place in the mainstream about how do we find in the current culture that feeling of antagonism and willingness Mm. to break things and danger that all of this kind of music and art was generated from at the time. And I think, you know, it's not a nostalgic movie, very much by design. It really tries to be present tense, but I think there's a question inherent in it about where there is an outside to the current all encompassingness of of the media ecosystem and social media and all of the things that keep us kind of from having a secret in the way that the Velvet Underground was kind of a secret and what that means to the culture. And I think that's something Haynes really is kind of probing at in a subtle way in the quotes he chooses from his interviewees and all of these things. And I th- I really left with that sense of stirredness and wondering on that level. Maybe that's the answer uh, that's to Karen's what? question in a way. If you walked into this completely having no idea who this band was, you would not walk out being able to say, oh, they influenced this band and this band and here's why they're important and here are all their albums. You'd want to go listen to them, right? And you'd want to go read more about them. And that seems like the best thing a documentary can do. I hope so. One thing I want to say quickly is that I couldn't quite remember what album had what track list. So I went back and looked, just go look at that first record's track list and your jaw 
It's true of all of their records, really. I mean, but your jaw hits the floor. Every single one is has its own integrity as a masterpiece. And together, it's just one of the great albums of all time. There are so many to choose from. But Carl, I'm going to make you pick one Velvet song for us to go out on. I think partly because it gets so much of the sound and also because it has kind of the right elegiac note to go out on. I think maybe All Tomorrow's Parties. Ah, perfect. Thanks, Carl Wilson. Please come back soon. Always a delight. Always glad to be here. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we go any further, this is typically where we talk business. Dana, what do we have? Thanks, Steve. The only business this week is to tell listeners about our bonus segment, our Slate Plus segment for the day, which is inspired by a listener email, as a lot of our Slate Pluses have been lately. We're really on a roll of getting great listener emails with ideas of things to talk about. Today's very riffable question comes from a listener who wants to know about outgrowing art, basically, art of our youth that is formative to us and important in some way, but that we don't revisit either because we're slightly embarrassed by it now. It just doesn't speak to us as much anymore. You know, we just sort of feel like we've assimilated its lessons and moved on. I know I have a lot to say about this, and I really am curious to hear what Steve and Karen have to say. So we will be talking about that at the end of the show if you're a Slate Plus member. If you're not a Slate Plus member, of course, you can sign up, as always, at slate.com slash culture plus. When you sign up, which costs only $1 for your first month right now, and all kinds of other benefits, including not ever having to hear me read an ad again. (laughs) So if you're interested in some of those perks, you can sign up, as always, at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. And thank you so much to those of you who are subscribers already. Okay, Steve, back to the show. All right. Well, Midnight Mass, it's a new streamer on Netflix. It stars Zach Guilford as a young tech baron whose life is upended totally and totally deservedly by a drunk driving accident that kills a teenage girl. He does four years in prison and comes out a deeply subdued, withdrawn young man whose sense of what comes next is so attenuated he returns to his dinky hometown. I don't think he has a lot of Affection for it, it's Crockett Island, which has a kind of coast of Maine vibe with weathered fishermen's houses and even more weathered fishermen, a kind of doleful on-island feeling of people living quite separate from the mainland and too long and too tightly with one another. A novelist once said there are only two stories, a stranger comes to town and a man goes on a journey. The show kind of has both, right? There's the return (laughs) of the prodigal son, and that coincides with the arrival of a young and charismatic priest. And then weird shit starts happening on the island. This is from Mike Flanagan. He's, I think, best known for his adaptations of Haunting of Hill House, the Shirley Jackson classic, and the Haunting a Bly Manor, which comes from Henry James. Let's listen to a clip. All right, let me just set it up really quickly. In it, you're going to hear Zach Guilford, the young man who's returned to the island, talking to the new priest at a little two-person AA meeting that the priest has set up for him on island. We can tolerate it because we can say things like, God works in mysterious ways. Like, like there's a plan, like something good's going to come out of it. Nothing good came out of my drinking. Nothing good came out of me killing that poor girl. Nothing good came out of Joe Colley's drinking, and not a single good thing comes out of Lisa never being able to walk again. 
Nothing good came out of a metric ton of crude oil filling up the bay. And the only thing, the only fucking thing that lets people stand by watching all this suffering doing nothing, doing fucking nothing, is the idea that suffering can be a gift from God. What a monstrous idea, Father. All right. Well, we're joined by Rebecca Onion, staff writer for Slate, of course, and very old friend of the program. We all go way back. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here to talk about this show, which I watched a couple of weeks ago and I can't stop thinking about. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, well, yeah. don't let me get in your way with a thickly worded question. Go. I mean, I think so. I wrote a post firstly about the sort of romance of the show. And I think I sort of am just like in love with Zach Guilford, possibly, but I also... <laughs> Me too. I don't want to be too spoilery, but he's only one part of the show. And just so much of the show is about a town that has really seen better days and people that have seen better days and how they react when the promise of something like a magic fix, like comes around the corner for them. And the sadness of the individual losses in the show, um, I think that's what's really stuck with me is how all these different people are facing down, you know, their community is fading, the ecology of the sea is like wrecked. A lot of them have lost, you know, the faith that they used to have in Catholic Church, a lot of people have moved away, you know, uh, Riley Flynn, who's a Zach Guilford character, his father has horrible back pain and like, can't dance with his wife anymore. You know, just all these sort of like individual tragedies and uh, a promise that comes around the bend for them that ends up being uh, possibly toxic and how they react to that. So I think that's what's really riveted me. What do you guys like about the show? If you do like it, maybe you don't. I think I had sort of the opposite compulsion from you guys, Rebecca and Steve, because for me, the most interesting part of the show was like the young charismatic priest who arrives to take the place of their former, very old, and according to the townspeople, somewhat out of mind, Monsignor. That was the part that was most interesting to me. And also, as much as I love um, Friday Night Lights, Matt Saracen, as much as I love him, I thought that the part of the show, that that half of the show rather, was kind of weaker to me just because I don't know if either of you guys felt this, but Mike Flanagan's propensity for monologues is so extreme, particularly in this show. Like every episode at some point grinds to a halt for a mm. monologue that takes five minutes. And it got to the point where around in the third episode, I watched this with my partner, we would turn to each other and go, here we go again. Like, here's the <laughs> monologue scene. Here it is. And I would say that not all of them really do that much in terms of expressing the characters in their life or propelling the story in any way. What did you guys think of that aspect of the show? <laughs> oh, definitely. The monologue and the voiceover are two of the biggest writer crutches I think in Hollywood, you've got to find a more action-oriented way of revealing character and moving the plot forward. So I, I didn't love that aspect of it, but I didn't see Friday Night Lights. It's one of those things I'm going to watch when I really have a time to binge the whole thing. So I wasn't familiar with him and didn't know that that was what he was known for. I just loved him in this. This is the hardest and quickest 180 I think I've ever done on a show where by the end of the first episode, I was like, this is homework, right? Like I'm not, <laughs> no way I'm watching this to the end. This is way too, it's got a kind of network, the F-bombs aside, it has a network vibe somehow to me. I thought, I'm not going to single them out because what I'm about to say is so negative, but I thought some of the secondary <laughs> characters were literally played by high schoolers in makeup. It had such a school play vibe. I don't know if this struck any of you, but I was like, that. there is no 
way that's a 62 year old man. Well, who's it been, serves you know, a story purpose. Steve, how far did you end up watching? I got to the end of the second episode, but, but, okay, you know, in well, my, in, <laughs> oh my gosh, in my defense, I'm desperately trying to finish Squid Game, a piece I owe to the Atlantic Monthly. And also I would have watched more of it if I hadn't liked it because I can now say that enthusiastically I do. I think when I'm, this is sharing too much, but when I cut something supposedly down to size, I want to have seen at least most or if not all of it. We, I just want to say quickly that what got me is I'm an on-island guy. I like love islands like this mm-hmm. and I love being on them and I love the vibe of them. I think this one sort of captures that. It's a little, got a little Hollywood hokum like mixed into its verite, but I loved the relationship between uh, Zach Guilford's character and the uh, young pregnant woman who's sort of stranded on the island, mostly because of their performance with each other. There's a moment in the, I believe first or early in the second episode, and I don't know if you remember this, where he says something about pregnant people and then he corrects himself and says pregnant women and she gives this little smile and says yeah they're usually women i am 100 percent sure not really but i'm gonna say i'm 100 percent sure that was a flub and he wanted to keep the scene moving so he corrected himself and she made the ad lib joke which is terrific and their rapport from that moment on as actors is so good it's like they're sharing little private jokes with each other. And I just got, that carried me into it. The supernatural stuff I don't care about very much, but you know, the non-high school actors in bad makeup performances to me are, are totally gripping as well as the <laughs> salty tang of the air. I'm so curious which ones you mean. <laughs> yeah, I have two thoughts. Number one, Steve, if you are an island fan, I don't know if you've seen the series The Third Day, but you should check that out. It's all about a little Ooh. island community. <laughs> and number two, oh, yes. I, the reason I asked about how much you'd seen is because there is a payoff to that kind of high school old acting slash makeup. There is a payoff Whoopsie for that. Whoopsie daisy. I was wondering if there almost yeah. had to be. Oh, yeah. shit. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to find out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not a big deal. I also, I, w- I would argue that there is also going to be an episode where there is a two-handed monologue <laughs> between Riley and Aaron. I fully um, respect that you guys love them, but that episode drove yeah. me crazy. Tell me why it drove you crazy. And I'll see if I can was, argue you down. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's fair. Whatever. Well, it was the fact that it's in two separate scenes where one of them does a monologue and then asks a question of the other person and that other person does a monologue. And then that happens twice throughout the episode. There's two different scenes where there's two monologues just back to back. Not great structurally. And also, I don't know, I wasn't as enamored of their rapport as you guys are, I think, although I I understand it. But when she's like, what do you think happens after death? Like, what do you think dying is like? I was like, get over it. Oh, <laughs> but no. Any- <laughs> Maybe I'm making excuses, but I felt like that was so so atmospheric to me of the way that Mm. their relationship was kind of like redeveloping so that, again, no spoilers, but something terrible happens to her. And they're spending, basically, they're spending a night where he's kind of like just being with her. And the sort of the extended sort of musings that they go into about the nature of life after death do have like an anchor in the story, like a reason why they're talking about it. And I don't know, I could kind of just like let myself go with it a little bit and feel like the mood of that like sort of like late night conversation in someone's mother's living room where it's just like, (laughs) you know, yeah, that's Um, fair. 
like just kind of a distillation of the relationship to like the talking of it. But I also maybe I just am like um, a sap and I was shipping them really hard and I want to see them. <laughs> I like, want I to see them understand. talking to each other. Yeah. W- whenever there's a show where you're like, I really wish these two characters would kiss. Whenever there's a scene with them, it's like, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> exactly. And now's the time. They're yeah. going to do it. But so that I'm not being too much of a downer, I will say I really think Hamish Linklater, who plays the young priest, is really, really good in this show. I think he is really the one actor where I like wasn't annoyed when he was doing a monologue just because he manages to carry okay. it so well. Um, and I also thought that the way that they handle the supernatural aspect in the show is really fun, which I guess is maybe not down to the show, but down to the like source material since this is based on a book. But the idea that if you weren't necessarily familiar like with the common monster tropes that we have, the idea that you would find something supernatural and think of it as like a sign from God is so intriguing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I love that idea. And I agree about Hamish Linklater. I don't know if he's been in anything else, but that you know of that that we could compare it to but well he was big as a theater actor for a while i would say that the stuff that he's done um in movies and tv is maybe a little less high profile currently but this is a huge role for him it's a tough job the charismatic young priest and you want him to be seductive but also a little creepy and getting that balance right is tough. And he's, I agree, he's terrific. I have a question for the panel, which is, you know, there is a attempt at theology. I mean, certainly in the clip that we heard, and I guess specifically theodicy, right? How do you account for the presence of evil? And the whole show kicks off with an EMS worker attending to the drunk driver, the main character who turns out to be the main character of the show. And at that time, that character is deeply religious. He comes from this very tight-knit, very Catholic community, and he begins to say, I believe the Lord's Prayer. And at that moment, he's informed he's killed this teenage girl. And the EMS worker just says, well, while you're at it, why don't you ask your God, why is it always the douchebags who walk away without a scratch? You know, and it's like, that's the show. Like the show is about (laughs) that question is like, how do you account for the, if you are a person of faith, how do you account for the ubiquitous presence of evil in human history. Do you find that a convincing element of the show or is it just a gesture that doesn't pay out? Well, I think it develops a little bit along the through the episodes into something a little bit different, which also has to do with people's relationship to death and oblivion. And I I don't think I'm just saying that because I really enjoyed the sort of like question of this run downtown and what was going to happen to it. But there's explicit conversation sort of later on in the later episodes about, you know, what people will do to avoid death or like what people will do to get back the earlier part of their lives that they thought was better than what they have and what that means about people's faith. So what you just identified about the Odyssey is part of it, but also kind of like interweaves with how people become evil or (laughs) how people sort of give in to their like clinging to life And in that giving in, what kinds of ethics and morals are they willing to give up? I think that is maybe the bigger point. Like, I think after a while, the show kind of loses sight a little bit of the question of, like, why do, like, good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people, basically. But, I mean, there is, like, one character in particular who's, like, so, like, annoying and heinous uh, while pretending to be very religious and devout. Where I'm, like... 
Yeah. I know. I know. We're like literally like within a, uh, an episode or two, I was like, I can't wait till she fucking bites the dust. And then she just kept on being alive. But I mean, it's that sort of thing that's fun where it's like, it's, it's especially explicit with her, right? Where it's like, she is a bad person, but believes she has more of God's love basically, which is an interesting yeah. um, character to have, even if she is like so blunt and in your face in terms of how horrible she is. Did you feel like her character wasn't nuanced enough? That is a good question because I don't, I never felt like I didn't understand her or anything like that. And I think maybe mm-hmm. I never thought mm-hmm. of her as a bad character just because her motivations and self are so clearly defined. And that actress is so impactful in that role. Yeah. Um, what did you think? Yeah, she's great. I both hated to see her on screen and also oh, yeah. wanted her to be in every scene. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> she yeah. was very cathartic for me. I guess let's put it that way. And I think in a show that has so many different characters that relate to religion, like more intensely or more just like intensely in different ways. She's sort of like an important archetype to have. She is just like an evil Christian lady though. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, the show is midnight masses on Netflix. Uh, We all seem to kind of dig it and uh, Rebecca really digs it. So yeah, yeah, just check it out and let us know what you think of it. Rebecca, thanks for coming back on the show. It's been too long. Let's do it again soon. Love it. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Okay, for our last segment, we're joined by Jesse David Fox. He is the host of the Good One podcast and a contributor, of course, to Vulture. Jesse, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. But Jesse, you're also the host, the co-host, I should say, of something called The Specials. Could you please talk about that? Sure, yeah. It's a Patreon where we we watch specials from history and review them and talk about them, talk about the context in which they were done. And, you know, I do it with Catherine Van Arendonk, who reviews specials for Vulture, and we try to like... I love Catherine. She's the best. Yeah. And just try to figure out what it means to review specials, uh, an art form that has not necessarily been reviewed like other mediums have. That's very cool. And we have to have you on sometime when there's a peg to do it, to talk about some kind of a special um, <laughs> and the history of specials and the backstory of specials. Cause it's like, you're right. It's this weird between the cracks category. So we've never, I'm happy to talk about Robert Klein's <laughs> and very important HBO <laughs> debut. Brilliant. All right. But for now we're talking about Dave Chappelle and I'm, I was like woefully unfamiliar with his body of work before these mm-hmm. sets of controversies. So if you would just sort of talk a little bit about his place in the history of stand-up and what got us to this present. You know. Sure. I'm trying to think of how to do it succinctly because it is like <laughs> the narrative, but I, I will do my best. He started doing comedy as a teenager. He was sort of a virtuoso and everyone in comedy thought he was really great. He had a special, I think in 1999, that is 
seen as a classic. Then he did Chappelle's show on Comedy Central in 2002 to 2004, something like that. And that was a really, really big deal. It was tremendously popular. It was the broke records for DVD sales. It is a comedic masterpiece in terms of both, you know, how it's using comedy to talk about race, but also structurally, it really pioneered a way of doing sketches that were filmed more like movies. And then the important thing is that in 2004, he left the show in pretty publicly. Comedy Central had offered him $50 million to do more seasons or something like that. And he sort of turned his back on this deal. And the sort of legend is he was doing a sketch where they were sort of parroting minstrel shows in some way. And someone on the crew, a white member of the crew, laughed. And it was a sort of a moment where Dave realized, oh, maybe my jokes are not being interpreted the way that I want them to. So he left the spotlight. This was sort of done fairly publicly, but essentially he went away. He moved to Ohio, where um, I believe he was from, and he did shows intermittently, but he sort of was away. And then in 2014, he sort of returned in the public eye. He did a bunch of shows at Radio City Music Hall. He came back in 2017 with... Netflix specials. And not only that, this sort of like the the rumors that he got paid a lot of money to do a number of Netflix specials. And that was in 2017 with the specials, The Age of Spin and Deep in the Heart of Texas. And in those specials, which I reviewed for Vulture and wrote fairly positively about sort of both. And I, I talked about how in both you see why he's seen as, as one of the greatest comedians that have ever lived. And I also mentioned, hey, there's like jokes, there's jokes about the LGBTQ community that are sort of not up to par, but ultimately this is great. And that kind of was the discourse around those specials, which is like, this is great, he's so good, but these things are less ideal. And it seems like from that moment, he only heard or largely heard the complaints and has been escalatingly... Mm -hmm responding to those complaints with the next two specials were which were called equanimity and the bird revelation and then again as he because he double dined there and then people in response to that then sort of was like hey this is worse than it was before so then he doubled down again with the special sticks and stones which as you can tell by the title is very much about hey these words should not offend you they're just words so that's 2019 and then this seems to be the, the new special seems to be him then quadruple downing only on complaints. He's like, I'm going to settle mm -hmm. all of this. Yeah. And that's what it's about. And he says it's his last special for an amount of time, whatever that means. Right. I should say it's called The Closer. It's up on Netflix now. And just very quickly, this is really my first experience. I'm embarrassed to say my first experience <laughs> of Chappelle as a stand-up. And you see that even, I will say this as someone who can't compare him to his earlier work, you see yeah. the, the genius. Like I, there's no doubt in my mind, 30 seconds in, I was like, he is a stand-up genius. He is one of the greats. I like completely understand that now. It's like probably like watching Jack Nicholas at the age of 60 hit a five iron. You know, mm -hmm. there's, it's like, yes, it's not the 30 year old Jack, but you understand what you're seeing and at some level. But of course, if my math is correct, he's at 72 times the level of prickliness and defensiveness over yeah. LGBTQ material and his relationship to that community. Now talk a little bit about that. You know, how far the doubling of doubling down, there's no walking it back, right? There's a quite serious demand for Netflix to remove the closer. And of course, those, the head of Netflix has refused in ways that strike some people as sort of hatefully tone deaf, bring us up to speed. So the framing of the special is that he's essentially is going to talk only about the three subjects in which he's made people the most 
Matt. So first he talks about gay people and then he talks about women and then he sort of uses the women to talk about trans people, which he then talks about for about 45 minutes or something of the special, which is a very long time. It's Mm -hmm. like he did a one person show about why he feels the way he does. And somewhere in there, there's certain points he's trying to make. That he feels like he's being misunderstood because he he argues his point is not that he's against these people. He's just against white people. And he feels like these people in the LGBTQ community are taking the advantages of being white. And that's part of the many problems of this is just sort of the idea of intersectionality sort of does not cross his mind. Like he tries to, but ultimately when he talks about trans people, he just means white trans women like that's all it's like just caitlin jenner and that's all that he understands so he talks about that he makes some jokes about it then he sort of just without sort of a joke part of it just basically goes like i am team turf i believe women are these things like in a way that is not attempts to be funny like truly just sort of like i'm explaining myself without jokes so it's clear that ultimately i believe in these things He tries to be like, look, the law shouldn't prevent them from being, but I don't think they're women. And then he tells sort of a longer story about this trans woman named Daphne, I believe her name is, who's a person he had an interaction with in San Francisco, which he had brought up in his last special. And he sort of uses that to be like, be more like her, the LGBTQ community. They shouldn't punch down on me as a person. It's like then it sort of gets all knotted up. But it stems from just not only making jokes about it, but then being like pretty outright being like, this is what I believe. And essentially... Using a lot of the language I think is sort of undeniably harmful. I mean, like you can have debates about what that harm looks like, but I do think it's like definitely really hard to watch both artistically and it's hard to stomach. And especially from a person that a lot of people care about a lot and a lot of people like find him to be a tremendous influence on how they view the world. So it, it, it's just sort of when you watch it, you vary between anger and frustration and just sort of a sadness of like, this is sort of where this person is at. All I'm doing on this episode is pivoting. But for a slight <laughs> pivot, we, you, Steve, you mentioned that like Sarandis was like, we're not walking back the special at all. But part of the big kerfuffle about the special is that like some trans employees of Netflix ended up being suspended slash someone ended up being fired. And then people were bringing up the fact that, for instance, the very popular Netflix series 13 Reasons Why got edited or had like a warning added to it because people were arguing that the depiction of suicide could potentially be harmful. And it's like, even at minimum, why wouldn't you do that with this? Especially as I think the culture is sort of shifting, like even with like old Disney movies on Disney Plus having a warning where it's like, this is a portrait of the time, it's culturally insensitive or having some kind of disclaimer about the material. I don't know. Jesse, you can probably speak a little bit more to exactly what happened at Netflix or inside the company with the employees who got suspended as well as I don't know what do you think is going to happen next because this definitely isn't a cycle that has ended yet yeah I mean I I believe as we're speaking they haven't done their walkout I mean it's interesting (laughs) because I believe in one of the early George Carlin specials when he did the joke about the words you're not allowed to say on television they had a disclaimer about like hey a person's going to be cursing a lot and so it's not without precedent Mm-hmm. There's two things that are happening here. The first is Netflix, Ted Sarandos, etc., does not want to be seen as not on the side of comedians. And especially the, a lot of comedians they have. Like, you know, they have Joe Rogan specials, but also like a comedian like Chris Rock and or Kevin Hart who believe in the comedian's right to say anything. They are also famous, so they don't really sort of put in two, to, two and two together of like, you can say whatever you want, but you don't necessarily, there's not like a right to get paid $20 million to have the things you say be brought 
broadcast to people, right? And so it's like that relationship with Dave Chappelle is more valuable to Netflix's bottom line, they think, than doing what might be preferable to their own employees. And then there is also the fact that if you look at Ted Sarandos' statements, a sort of like complete to me, misunderstanding of like how comedy works or what comedy is or what comedy should be. The the statement that I sort of remember, which is like some of you, he's writing to the employees, which is some of you might find comedy mean-spirited, but many of our audience likes it. Oh, brother. Not really understanding that, one, it's possible that some of the audience likes it because it's mean-spirited, right? Like right. he's ignoring that comedy can have negative implications. And he fundamentally thinks that people don't understand comedy when they're reacting this way. Whereas the truth is, you know, there's a thread by, I believe they're an engineer at Netflix who did a thread, which is like, we are not offended. We're scared for our lives. And then it's a list. It's a very long list of like names of trans people. Then like this person wasn't offended. And then like the day they were murdered. And it's an incredibly powerful list. And the point being like, these are real implications. And the, the frustrating part is like, if anyone should understand that is Dave Chappelle. He was so offended by his own comedy, he quit the show, his own show. He understands that jokes could have negative implications. And as a result, he took a step back. And now for some reason, he's like, hey, it's all jokes. You can do whatever you want. And mm. I've gone to fights periodically on Twitter because I talk about <laughs> how bad the special is. Like not about how uh, harmful it is. I talk about like it is sort of a failing of the art form of stand-up comedy. When you talk about sensitive issues, you're partly doing it because it raises the stakes of a joke. And as a result, you can have a bigger payoff because people are like, ooh, you're talking about a touchy mm -hmm. subject. The problem is when you fall into a trap of that, where you become addicted to that sort of push-pull, it makes you a very predictable comedian in which every joke has a very similar structure and it's all hinged on just how shocking the punchline is. And because he's so good at comedy, it is particularly frustrating. You know, like I watch a lot of specials, a lot of comedy of people being offensive because they don't know what they're doing. So this is the special where you're like, Oh, he knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, it's funny. He says, correct me if I'm wrong, but he seems to have kind of swayed himself in two defenses simultaneously. One is the kind of Lenny Bruce, right? Mm -hmm. This is what we do. It's the job yeah. description. Like, I have to find a boundary because I'm a danger comedian and I need the precipice or else this vertiginous sense of the sense of ultimate danger, electric danger, that the that speaking and misspeaking have to go together. And we live in, in unlike Lenny Bruce, we don't live in the 1950s. We didn't, we weren't raised in Ike's America. The blue laws don't inhibit us anymore. If anything, the opposite. There's just no way to transgress in that way again. And this is the one way. So if you have that comedic DNA, you're going to repeatedly go there on what I believe are completely false pretenses. This is not a <laughs> defense of Dave Chappelle. Yeah. More intriguingly to me is this idea that as a black man in America, you can't possibly be punching down. Mm. There's this attempt to say like, and it's very explicit in this special, in the closer. It's like, no, 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 no. We got the big, like we got the biggest and most unique shaft that a country has ever given its own citizens. It isn't even the right word. I will say one of the things that I responded to was not only his gift as a stand-up comedian, and I have no position on whether this thing should be taken off the air, whatsoever. I'm completely the wrong person to speak to that. But the second thing was he grew up a supremely intelligent black man in the United States of America. 
and the kind of psychic wound that delivers is not a competition, but is in some ways unique. Now, whether it's deeper or worse or more of an excuse for the kinds of things you say, I have zero opinion on. I cannot speak to that. But I will say that he's throwing his intelligence with so much rage back at the viewer. And I think that he can't modulate that to take in the suffering of others and the claim they might make on his speech and his Mm. supposed right to speech. And so I found it weirdly illuminating to watch, even though I had to stop it. There was just some things I was like, I can't let Netflix's algorithm (laughs) register approval from me. And so that's kind of where I came out. The thing that I think you get at, which is, you know, he would defend himself or comedians that defend him. They're like, well, he's saying the things you can't say, right? That was the Lenny Bruce sort of debate, which is like, Lenny Bruce was saying the things that you weren't allowed to say in polite society and you weren't allowed to say, so he was pushing the, the boundaries of free speech and allowing you to speak to an institution. The truth is, right now, no one is preventing a lot of people to talk <laughs> about how much they hate trans people. There is more opportunity for transphobic people to have a platform. There's just nothing stopping them. No one is preventing them. The only people that feel like people are preventing them from criticizing trans people are famous people. Mm -hmm. So all he really is defending is the right for famous people to say whatever they want and still be as famous as they are. And it's why famous people really love him and really rally around him because they're jealous because they would like to also say whatever they want and stay famous. However, that is one, not relatable. And two, it is just inherently a grotesque subversion of a form that was designed to when you're like pushing boundaries of free speech to be going against power structures. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, it is so not interesting to watch a person be this defensive for this amount of minutes. It is just like not compelling (laughs) art. The whole situation is so depressing, especially again, because of what's happening internally at Netflix, where it's like, it's not just this one man who is being transphobic. It's this entire system that is enabling him sort of, as you say, Jesse, like because everyone wants to be in proximity with someone who's famous or who they think Mm. has like a cachet that will pay off for them. When in reality, like I think the 13 reasons why example is like such a clear contrast where it's like, there is something that you can do at least on a very surface level that I think is pretty low effort in term for all people involved. And it's also it also feels just so cynical now looking at like the Netflix brand accounts where they're like, oh, we're so proud of like being allies and uplifting storytellers who normally don't get to tell their stories. And even like that tweet thread from there, um, they have like a social channel that is specifically devoted to like mm. queer stories and stuff like them tweeting out like we're really disappointed that this happened. And it's like you can't say that while in this structure, like or at least it <laughs> yeah. coming from a branded account, it feels disingenuous somehow. And just everything about it is just really depressing. Yeah, it felt like a company being like, I know we make the poison, but we also make the antidote to the poison. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. Those accounts, and I understand if you're at that job, you want the ability to be like, not be like, I know we're Netflix, but, you know, but it's just something of, either way, Netflix is winning. Like the fact that we're talking about it in the context of Netflix, Netflix is like, hooray, Netflix is in the news. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. All right, well, sadly, I think we're going to let that be the last word, but Jesse, please come back. This was great. It's a pleasure. Anytime you want, I'm around. Superb. Thanks a lot. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. 
news, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques, and that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. I'm LeVar Burton, and if you're ready to escape into another world for a little bit, check out my podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. I read my favorite stories aloud every week by everyone from Stephen King to N.K. Jemison to Toni Morrison. Plus, we add a little sound design and music to make it a truly immersive experience. Listen to LeVar Burton Reads wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, my endorsement this week is such low-hanging fruit, if you know anything about um, the Warhol factory scene and some of the stories that are told in that wonderful Todd Haynes Velvet Underground documentary that we talked about earlier. It is essentially the book equivalent of that documentary. Uh, the documentary, as Carl pointed out, really uses oral history as its main structure. And the first time I ever learned anything about that whole world of, you know, Andy Warhol's factory, the Velvet Underground, the whole art scene that surrounded it was when I was a teenager reading an oral history, the first oral history I ever read, I think, and one of the best oral histories I've read to this day, which is Edie by George Plimpton and Gene Stein. They're credited as the as the authors, but really they're the editors of this book because it's there's no interstitial material. It's completely made up of testimony from people that were there on the scene uh, of the factory. Obviously, in 1982, a lot more of those people were still around than now in 2021. So, you know, they just get interviews with every figure you could imagine from that time, um, people who were there on the scene observing it. And whoever was doing the interviews, I assume it was Plimpton and Stein, just got such great stories out of these people. Everyone's voice is so distinctive and beautifully captured on the page. So as you're reading the story of Edie Sedgwick, who, if you know anything about that scene, you know, is this model, actress, you know, socialite, social connector, and really tragic, fascinating figure who was maybe not at the center, but but very integral to that, to that factory scene. Uh, her story is told as if it were this fascinating novel or film, even though everything that's on the page is someone's true life words. So I couldn't recommend it more strongly if you haven't read it. Um, it's total page turner, Edie by George Plimpton and Gene Stein. Oh, that's so cool. Karen, what about you? What do you have? I have a movie recommendation. So um, something that I was thinking about when I was watching Squid Game recently is about how fun it is that it really kind of subverts the popular image that Yi jung has in Korean pop culture, especially. If you're interested in seeing one of the roles that he's most famous for, I would highly recommend the movie called New World or Shin Sege in the original Korean title. It is a crime drama and features Yi jung as a undercover cop um, who is dealing with the mob um, and how he is caught between his pretty ruthless boss as well as the gangster that he's serving who ends up being kind of more of a friend than he thinks. It's very good and it was very popular in Korea as well. Stars just a murderer's row of great Korean actors. I think this was the big thing that really made um, Hwang Jung-min, who really famous, and um, Choi Min-sik is in it as well, uh, famous from Old Boy. It's just a great, fun Korean crime drama, and I highly recommend it. That sounds amazing. Say the title one more time. New World. 
And where is it available? Do you know? I don't believe it is streaming uh, for free, any well, quote unquote for free anywhere, but I think it's pretty easily rentable mm. um, online. There are ways to find it, I'm sure. All yeah. right. So I have a couple of a uh, couple of endorsements. I'll be really quick. The first is uh, What's Not to Love, right? The TV show Chestnut Man on Netflix is a uh, Scandi crime drama. It's dark. It's taught it's really fun takes place in fun that's not fun but it's it's really quite sumptuously done and it takes place in copenhagen i found it completely gripping i haven't finished it yet but i i'm surprised at how much it's very chilling kind of familiar from a genre standpoint premise gets well carried through on, right? It, it doesn't sort of set everything up and then really have no idea where to go. I think it's terrific. I think this is very good TV if you like that kind of thing. And then very quickly, the, the very beginning of uh, Midnight Mass, I think in the opening frames of it, there's a song playing that I wasn't familiar with, but it's a, apparently, I think, a pretty classic Neil Diamond cut called And the Grass Won't Pay No Mind. I love the Neil Diamond version. It strikes me as definitive. Elvis did it as well. But the interest there... I don't think is the final product because it was sort of syrupy and overproduced compared to the diamond version. So, but they're on YouTube, I completely by accident by just putting the song title in this, in the search function of YouTube discovered that there's this whole genre of YouTube videos taking you from, it's just purely the audio, the raw audio of rehearsal to the master tape of Elvis songs. And this is one of them. And he's in wonderful voice. I mean, I, of course, understand that Elvis Presley could sing, but I just don't principally <laughs> think of him as a, I think of him as a phenomenon larger than any identifiable facet of music somehow, right? Like just a figure, figure beyond actual singing or songwriting or appearing in movies or anything that he specifically did, but his singing voice is really lovely. And you hear that from the very first rehearsal tape, what an extraordinary vocalist he is. And it's before they've overproduced it. So it's actually a wonderful introduction of the song, but I also recommend the song, the Neil Diamond version it's called, and the grass won't pay no mind. You probably all already know it. It was new to me. Karen, it's always really cool to have you on the show. It's very fun and it had better happen again soon, young lady. I actually have a quick question. Why is it called The Chestnut Man? Oh, well, you'll have to watch it and find out, but it's... it's (laughs) Chestnut Man is apparently something (laughs) that gets made in... Little kids make them in Scandinavia, maybe just Denmark, I'm not sure, but they're little kind of men. They're like gingerbread men, but they're made out of little chestnuts and they're deployed in a very sinister way in this. And it's good. I mean, if you like that kind of show, right? The the drenched in darkness and the Scandinavian <laughs> dusk, right? Like it's just, it's like just drenched in Scandinavian dusk and atmospherics, but it's quite, I think it's quite well done. Dana, as always, a total pleasure. Good to be with you guys. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We do love to hear from you. We've been getting extraordinary emails really lately. I mean, in part because of all of our many fuck-ups and, and miscues. But the, the level of engagement is extraordinary. It gives us some sense of the community of people who listen to the show. So I do encourage those. We do try to uh, respond to them eventually. The introductory music to the show is by the remarkable film composer Nick Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. For Karen Hahn and Dana Stevens and uh, the various cast of people who joined us today, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Please put down your hands, I see you. 
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.